Let's take our Bibles and turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. It's a very difficult passage, as Brian mentioned, and we are going to try to do our best to interpret and understand this wonderful passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 6. What if I were to tell you that this morning I, I measured myself at home on uh, my height scale, and I am six foot five inches tall. And uh, some of you would say, unless you're blind, that uh, you're, there must be something very wrong with your scale or something, because you're certainly not six foot five inches tall. But I say, I am. I measured myself. And so he said, well, let's go back to your house and take a look. So we go back and we look at the scale that I have on the wall. I've taped on a wall. And notice that I put it exactly one foot off. So I'm not six five. I'm five five. But I still insist that I'm six foot five inches tall. And you say, well, if you want to be deluded, that's your business. But uh, you're not that tall. The people who are being written to in the book of Hebrews, this group of Christians, perhaps in one church, perhaps in several churches, they're apparently Jewish believers. Uh, these individuals, he's writing to them, he says, you're, you're confused. You're measuring yourself by the wrong standard, and therefore you see yourself in a way that God doesn't see you. So I want to take you out at God's standard and measure you by that on a spiritual level to see where you really are. And as he does that, he, he is greatly concerned with these people as we have gone through the book. Five different times in the book of Hebrews, he says to them, I am concerned about your eternal salvation. Uh, you're making profession of being saved. You claim that you belong to Christ, but something is seriously wrong, and I'm not exactly sure where many of you are. On five different occasions, uh, he approaches that subject very directly. This is the third one, and this is the toughest one, and this is the, the most intense one and the hardest one that is found in the book as he deals with the dullness and the sluggishness of their Christian walk, as he talks about in chapter 5. So he wants to look, to look at this, and as we read these verses of Scripture, we find that this is a hard passage. In verse, starting with verse 4, we find a number of descriptions given of, uh, of people, and what throws us here a bit is these terms uh, are used differently in the book of Hebrews than they're used in most other places in the New Testament. And as a result of that, it, it makes us scratch our head and say, who exactly is he talking about here when he, when he gives these various descriptions? And as he does so, uh, some people have drawn the conclusion, there are obviously a lot of conclusion from this passage, some have drawn the conclusion that that he's talking to unbelievers, people that don't know Christ at all, and he's trying to draw them to Christ. Others have said, no, he's talking to believers who have not pressed on in the faith, as he talks about in verse 1 of this chapter. They have, they have just simply not moved forward, and therefore uh, he's, he's calling them to some form of spiritual maturity and growth. Others say it's something in between. So how are we going to decide on this probably one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament about what he's talking about and who he's talking to. How are we going to do that? Well, we're not going to, to do that. We're going to take our time, just slowly work through this. We're going to start by analyzing these descriptions, and then we're going to move forward to interpret them and then to apply them. And I suggest that's what you always do with the reading of the Scriptures. Uh, you, first of all, analyze what's there, be very careful, and then you interpret that before you ever begin to apply it to your life. By doing it this way, I think we'll come out with some pretty good idea of what's going on here. I trust that we will. So we start off with an analyzation, 
And we try to see what he's talking about here. He's talk, who is he talking to? And as we look at this, we have a number of descriptions that I want to look at with you. He starts off in verse 4 by saying, For in the case of those who, were, who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Five descriptions. So let's take them one at a time. In case of those who have once been enlightened. Now Jesus said when he, uh, it was said in John chapter 1 when Jesus came, he was the light of the world. And because he was the light of the world, he, he enlightened everyone. So in some sense, Jesus has given light to the whole world because he was here, because he came. But later on in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Only those who come to me to the true light, who really follow the true light, are truly saved. And so the world may be enlightened. I think everyone, to some degree, have been enlightened by Christ. But only those who come to him, who follow him, are truly saved. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it talks about those who had, at one point in time, had uh, heard the word. It says a little differently. I want to read this to you. You don't have to turn. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, For if they, if they are overcome, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and having again been entangled in them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now listen to this. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It is better that you don't know the truth of the gospel than that you hear the gospel and you turn away from it according to the scriptures. And so we are, everyone is enlightened. Uh, what, not everyone comes to Christ because they're in the light. Here's the second one. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Or It says here. Uh, to, to taste means to experience. So here's an individual who has experienced in some way the heavenly gift. They've tasted, they've, they've sampled at least uh, what is here. So uh, the scriptures usually don't talk about tasting. It talks about absorbing or consuming these things. So what is he saying in this passage of scripture? Well, uh, some of you like to make chili. Let's give you an example here. Some of you are chili makers. Okay, so once in a while in the wintertime, we have a chili cook-off on Wednesday night, and a dozen or 15 or 20 people bring their, their chili, and they got their homemade recipe, right? The secret recipe. And every chili that comes in is different, because everybody makes it differently. And I really don't care how you make it, I just want to eat it, so you bring whatever you want to bring. But as you're working on your chili at home, uh, you might, you're probably going to sample it, right, as you go through it, make sure it's tasting good. We're trusting you don't use your finger to sample your chili or a spoon and you put it back in. We're trusting you, so I hope we can trust you. But you're sampling along the way, making sure the chili tastes right. Otherwise, you're going to add a this, that, and the other. So he's using that word tasted here in kind of that way. Is he, is he saying that people have sampled the heavenly gift or have they consumed the heavenly gift? It's hard to call. It's really hard to call. And then thirdly, he says they become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament never says anywhere else that we're partakers of the Holy Spirit. It says we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the scriptures teach that in, in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, that the true mark of every believer is that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And if the Holy Spirit is not within us, 
then we're not truly Christians. So that's how the New Testament usually says that. But here he says partakers of the Holy Spirit. Once again, is, is this person indwelt by the Spirit? Or are they simply more or less sampling the Holy Spirit? The idea seems to be that they've come within the sphere of the Holy Spirit. They've been around Christian people. They perhaps have been around the church. They, they've come under the, in the sphere where the Holy Spirit ministers. And so in that sense, they have tasted of the goodness of the Holy Spirit. But have they actually come to Christ and are they indwelt by the Holy Spirit? This little section doesn't really tell us. And so we must move on as well. He also says we've tasted of the good word of God. And so when he says that, once again, he's experienced the word. Unbelievers often benefit from the word of God, even if they reject it. Because the word of God is so true, it's so accurate. I, when, I've, when I have counseled unbelievers, which I do once in a while, not too often, but I remember some time ago I counseling a couple that wanted to get married, and they were not Christians. I knew they weren't Christians, but uh, I did uh, counsel with them. And as I, as I did that, and I was explaining the various principles of marriage found in the New Testament and, and the Old Testament as well, uh, the one guy said to me, you know what, this is just common sense. This is just common sense. I said, well, yes, because God makes sense. And on top of that, God invented marriage, so he knows exactly what makes it work, so it ought to make sense if God's word is true, which it is. And so have these people actually actually received the word of God, or are they simply benefiting from the word of God? Again, hard to call. And then the last one, they tasted the powers of the age to come. Well, this was a unique one here. Because I think uh, the uh, Hebrews had a little up, uh, a leg up on us on this one. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 3, he speaks about this. He said that, uh, how shall we, uh, 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So what he told us there is that, that, these people had experienced a time when the apostles themselves, who were the ambassadors for Christ, who went out with the good news, those, uh, those apostles worked signs and miracles to authenticate who they were. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says that was the purpose of these sign gifts. And so they had seen that. We've not seen that uh, because we don't have any apostles today. There were 12 apostles and as each one of those died off, they were never replaced after they passed away. And when John died in about sometime in the 90s A.D., uh, he was never replaced. And the last of the apostles are gone. Therefore, the signs and wonders are not around because there's no apostles to authenticate. And they're gone from us. But these people had seen that. So without apostles, we have those signs and wonders here. Now, once in a while, I get a phone call from a so-called apostle. I've told you that before. Uh, the secretaries say, uh, Gary, Apostle so-and-so would like to talk to you. And I say, I know I'm in for a doozy of a conversation. When that co- I usually take it because I can't resist. I, I just got to talk to a real-life apostle. So the apostles begin to talk to me. And as I do talk to them, it's always a little loony, a little crazy. Because these people have either self-appointed themselves as apostles. Or they bought it. You know, you can buy an apostleship. 
off the internet. You can buy anything off the internet. Don't Google it right now. Now do it later. But you can buy these things and you can become an official apostle or some organization called you an apostle. But the scripture says there are 12 apostles of the Lamb and they're all gone. There are no more. So those people that call me claiming to be apostles are not. But it says here that the Hebrews had tasted of the powers of the age to come. That means that the, the scriptures of the Old Testament especially tell us of some of the great wonders that will take place when Christ returns. When he sets his kingdom up on earth, there's going to be unbelievable amount of power and wonders and marvelous things that happen. And these people had tasted just a foretaste of some of that power and what that was all about. And so they had had that privilege of having done that. Still, that doesn't tell us whether these people are saved or not. So we're still working through this. Are these people that do not know Christ, they've been under the sphere, the influence of all these things that pertain to Christ, but they haven't come to Christ, or are they true believers who simply have not pressed on and grown up and gone to maturity? Which is it? Well, we're still scratching. We're still working through this. And by the way, I have done an extreme amount of research and study for this sermon, probably as much as any I've ever done, and I don't have time to give it to you. Aren't you happy? And so if you want the notes on all that, I can email those to you, and you can work on those for a long, long time. But I'm giving you the surface of what we're getting here. There's, one, there's another line here that we have to look at. Now we're getting a little bit nasty almost, very difficult. He said, of these people, after they have gone, have been enlightened and tasted and partaken and tasted and so forth, if they now, he says, verse 6, fall away. Now keep in mind, we're looking at the Holy Word of God. If, we're, uh, if, we, if we weren't believing that, if we didn't believe this is the inspired, never wrong scriptures, the, re- the revelation of God himself, we would just skip all of this stuff. But as we look at it carefully together, we see he has something serious to tell us. And what does he mean that they have tasted the good word of God and all that, but they have fallen away? Who is he talking about that have fallen away? First of all, he's not talking about the general unbeliever. Because the general unbeliever, the person out there in the world who doesn't claim to be a Christian, has very little of anything to do with Christ could care less, that person has not fallen away. They've never come. See the point? They've never come. These people are people who have partaken and tasted and been enlightened, but now they have rejected it to some degree, and they have fallen away. They have denounced, they have turned away from the faith. This is an interesting time in history to talk about this, We're living in an absolutely unique period of of American history. Anecdotally, you probably know this, but let me flesh it out a little bit. I'm reading a book right now called The Great Dechurching. Something amazing has happened. A spiritual movement of of the, the fourth largest spiritual movement that's ever happened in America is happening right now, and you're living through it. Historically, there have been three massive movements where there have been a lot of all-at-once movement spiritually in America. The first one was during the Great Awakening in the middle of the 1700s. And during that time, uh, about double 
church attended. The church attendance about doubled during that time. Believe it or not, although a lot of times we think the early Americans were very church, only 17% of Americans went to church before 1740. And doubled during that time. Huge movement of people coming to Christ and coming to church. And then it kind of died away. And then along came what we call the Second Great Awakening, which took place about 1800, went on for about 40 more years. And once again, the church attendance and people, uh, as far as we know, getting, getting saved, about doubled. Huge numbers of people came back to Christ, came back to the church, and the church was, was uh, thriving at that time. Then it died away, and then the Civil War came along. And that really messed up everything. But following the Civil War, starting about 1870, going to the end of the century, was the greatest spiritual movement in the history of America. Church attendance doubled once again. And people flooded into churches all across the country, and a lot of people during that time got saved. But from about 1900 on, there's not been anything like that. And church attendance and so forth is slowly either stabilized or maintained uh, or dropped for a long, long time. Then we come to the last several cent- a day, or decades. In our lifetime, the fourth largest movement spiritually in the history of America has taken place. And actually, it is the largest movement in all of American history. But it's a large movement in the wrong direction. About half of all people that were attending church 25 years ago no longer attend church. Isn't that an amazing statistic? Have you, have, you, have you noticed how few people actually are going to church these days? In 1972, 41% of Americans went to church on a regular basis. 41%. 50 years later, 2021, 24% go and is dropping year by year. Amazing change. A great de-churching is happening. People are moving away from the things of God rapidly, and you're, you're right in the midst of that. They're spiritual falling away. Now, some of those people that fall away are true Christians, and others are not, but nevertheless, they're falling away. I also find it interesting that in 1972 was virtually the birthday of the seeker-sensitive church movement the, and the megachurch movement. It's when all these, all this, let's not preach the word, let's not give them hard stuff, let's, give, let's entertain them to death, bring them to church, give great programs. It's, that was the birthday of that 19, early 1970s. And as that has happened year by year by year, people stop going to church. The mega churches are booming. They're huge. But statistically, half of all people are no longer going to church that used to go. Amazing statistic, is it not? So we turn back to our passage. And they have fallen away. And I would also mention this. The most angry people I know are people who used to go to church, used to claim to be Christians, have fallen away and turned away. And now they're, they're blaming anybody and everybody for falling away. They're looking for someone to blame. It's the church. It's their parents. It's their friends. It's their pastors. It's whoever they want to blame. But they don't want to take responsibility for what they've done. Now, what happens if somebody falls away here? What is he speaking of here? Well, it says the next line, and this gets even harder, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I want you to note here, he doesn't say it's difficult to renew them. 
to repentance. He says it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Impossible. Why? Why? Because they have crucified to themselves again the Son of God. That is, they have lined up behind the very ones that crucified Jesus. Had they been on the stage at that moment, at the foot of the cross, they too would have crucified Jesus. Therefore, there is no other hope for them. They cannot be brought back. Now, now think of it this way. Let 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 me rephrase it a little bit. Let's say you want to go somewhere and you put the coordinates in your phone or your GPS and it gives you three options, three different routes you can take, okay? And you can choose whichever one you want and you'll get there eventually, right? A lot of people see the gospel exactly like that. Here are the options and I'll choose the one I like the most. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way to Christ. And if you reject that one way, and go another way, or try to go another way, you are forever lost, and you cannot be renewed through repentance. Now let me summarize all that. It's tough, tough stuff. Here are people that have been affiliated with the churches. They have turned to some degree from bad habits and sins, They have been exposed to the gospel. They have heard true preaching, but they've turned away and they've rejected the heavenly gift. Our author has not said for sure whether or not these people are saved, but it's very likely that many of them are not. He's writing again to a people he's not sure where they are. Some of these people are saved and some are not. He doesn't know. He's not Christ. He he writes to them and he says, you need to examine your life carefully. Can they know? Is there any indication as to whether or not they're truly saved? They've had all these spiritual benefits, but is there any way that they could know if they're truly saved? Yes. And that leads us to the illustration in verses 7 and 8. This illustration is given many times. People trying to interpret this passage, for whatever reason, ignore these two verses. That's a big mistake. Look at these two verses illustrations are, are designed to let, like windows are designed in a building, to let the light in. They're not the meat, but they're the, they're the light. This illustration explains everything he's saying here. Look at the illustration. He says in verse 7, For a ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if, th- but if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Here's what he's saying. The piece of ground is us, people. The rain has fallen on that ground. If that ground then therefore brings forth fruit, good fruit, it's a sign that that ground, that person, knows Jesus Christ. If, on the other hand, that same ground receives the blessings he's been talking about, these five different things, and it, bring, it brings forth thistles and thorns, it's a sign that it is, the ground is worthless, it's close to being cursed, and it will be burned. Therefore, he's describing the unbeliever at this point. So he's saying, look at your life. What, you, you've received these blessings. All these things are yours. 
What is it producing in your life? Is it producing fruit? Is there any evidence of Christ's likeness in your life? Or is it producing thorns and thistles and making no effect whatsoever in a positive direction? By looking at that, you can see where you really are with Christ. Let's go quickly to the application. As he wraps all this up, then, is he speaking to unbelievers or to Christians? I think as always throughout this book, he's speaking to a population, a, a, a church or churches that is populated by people who are not showing much evidence of the faith. Some he, know are, he knows are Christians. Others, he's not real sure. He's laying it out before them to examine their life, to look at their lives to see whether or not they truly know him. The warning then is directed to those who claim to be saved, who have had all the benefits that the Lord has given them in, that we've looked at, but who are giving little evidence of their salvation. He's saying you better look. better not blow this off. You better not say, well, you know, I go to church a couple times a year, or I'm a nice person. I, I can take another route to God. I don't need to take the route of Christ. So you're t- playing a dangerous game because verse 8 says such people will ultimately be cursed and burned, destroyed, is what he's saying. Now, whenever I preach on a, on a subject like this, especially from a passage like this one, it shakes up some people. They, they begin to look at their lives and they say, well, after all that you just said, I'm not real sure that I'm a Christian. And let me say this. This passage is not given to us by the Holy Spirit for you to doubt your salvation. It's given to us by the Holy Spirit to confirm our salvation if we know Him. Okay, the question is, do you know Him? And by saying that, I want to say this. For those that are maybe rattled a little bit, and you're saying, you know what? I think I'm saved, but I'm not perfect. Join the club. You know, I think I'm saved, but there's sometimes I sin. Guess what? So do we all. I, I think I know Christ, but there's times I have these ups, and there's times I have these downs, and there's times I'm enthused, or sometimes I'm not. Uh, am I saved? Well, this passage doesn't lay it out and say, yes, you are. No, you're not. It asks us to examine the ground and what God is doing on that ground. But as I say that, I want to give you real assurance of where you are if you know Christ. There are three evidences in the New Testament that that you can look at today as you leave to determine whether or not you are truly born again, truly regenerated, truly His, or not. We're not playing any games here. I find as I read the Bible, the Lord doesn't give pl- play softball. He's, he's throwing it hard. He's given us the truth. Don't ignore it. Three evidences you're saved if you are. Number one, you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Throughout all the New Testament, over 150 times, it tells us salvation cannot be earned. It cannot be merited but it can be given. And God offers us through Jesus Christ's death on a cross and dying for our, in our place. He offers us the gift of salvation that is received by faith alone, turning from our sins, turning to Christ, receiving His gift. Number one, do you know, as you're set right here right now, that you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? 
So I'm not asking you what you did at camp 17 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church. I'm asking you at this moment in time, do you know with absolute certainty that you're trusting Jesus Christ by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins? That's number one, and that's the most important one. Number two, do you have evidence of regeneration in your life like verse 7 says you should have? Has the Holy Spirit in your life, the regeneration, born again experience, made a difference in your life? Has it changed you? Scripture everywhere says it should. Do you see the Holy Spirit leading you towards godliness? Do you want and desire to be more like Christ all the time? Knowing that you'll never arrive there, but you press on day after day. Some days you you don't do well. But the overall direction of your life is to be like Jesus Christ. Do you see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Again, not perfection. But you're growing in the things of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. Do you see those things in your life? Are they there? Do you desire to, for the things of Christ? Do you have a hunger for His Word? Do you want to obey and follow Him? You don't always do it, but is that your heart's desire, to obey Christ, to follow Christ? That's the second one. Number three, a pattern of growth in your life. He said in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Do you want to grow in Jesus Christ? Do you really want to be what he wants you to be? In Second Peter chapter, two, chapter 1, let me read these verses to you. He says, now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. Now listen, if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you growing in Him? Do you desire to grow in Him? When we put these three things together, we see the evidence is found in the Scriptures. You're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. You're seeing the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, of regeneration in your life. Not in any perfected way, but it's there. And you're growing in Him and you desire to grow in Him. These are the evidences of salvation in our lives. When Marcia was growing up, she lived in a little town, about 400 people up in central Illinois. And there was a church they built there in this little town. And they started off with a basement church, just the basement. All these years later, we just drove through there. All these years later, they've never built a superstructure on it. It's still a basement, an abandoned basement from what I can tell. They started something they didn't complete. Have you started something you didn't complete? Have you been, been under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under, under the tasting of the gospel, and you, you were interested, you were drawn, but you did not go forward to place your faith in Jesus Christ? Or as a Christian, you are saved, but you're just not going anywhere. You're the same person you were 20 years ago. Have you started something you didn't complete? I encourage you today to think of the glorious gospel 
This is not a passage to, to make you doubt your salvation. It's a passage to ensure absolutely certainty that you know Christ. And there's nothing more glorious, more wonderful than that. One of the most influential uh, church leaders in church history is a man that most of you have never heard of. His name was Frederick Schreimacher. Schreimacher is known as the father of mod- uh, theological liberalism. He grew up as a, as a, seemed to be a Christian, wanted to go into ministry, but as he began to study different things, he began to reject everything. He rejected scripture, rejected Christ, he rejected the gospel, he rejected everything. And he laid the foundation for everything you see in a liberal theology today. This is the man who did that. He lived from 1768 to 1834, and he laid that foundation. But four or five years before he died, this man who had spent his whole life doubting and deconstructing the Christian faith stood before a grave of his nine-year-old son. And he had the task of preaching the funeral of this little boy that he'd had in his older years that he loved with all of his heart. This man who had doubted the faith, deconstructed the faith, led hundreds of thousands, perhaps over the years, millions to move away from the faith. As he stood before the grave of his little boy, he opened the Bible and he preached the message he learned in his own childhood that Jesus saves. When it came to the greatest crisis of life, the loss of the one he loved the most, he didn't have doubts. He didn't talk about the enlightenment. He didn't go after skepticism. He went to the one hope that God gives us, the gospel. Eternal life. Jesus saves. He still does. He saves. This passage of scripture is not to shake your faith. This passage is to make sure you're in the faith. Because without the faith you have no hope whatsoever. But with the faith you have Jesus Christ forever. I hope this has been helpful. Father we pray now. As we have gone through this difficult passage, we could have gone through a lot more details, but I trust we've got the the gist of the subject across. Father, I pray for those that are here who do not know you as Savior, that this might be the very day they say, you know what, I need Christ. And I will come to him at this moment. And Lord, for Christians who are here and they're just kind of stuck in the mud, going nowhere, spinning their tires... Father, may this be a day they say, enough, enough. I want to truly follow Christ and, and make, take advantage of all these great benefits that he has given me. So I pray, Lord, for all of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.